Uh, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn uh, to Second Chronicles. There, there's a, a, a name for you. Back in the middle of the Old Testament, one of the historical books, this is our last Sunday, uh, looking at the ancient kings of Israel and Judah. And we're that very last guy down there in the bottom right-hand corner as you face the stage, Josiah is the fellow that we're going to look at this week. He ruled uh, around 700 years before Jesus uh, came. So I'd give you 700 BC, thereabouts, give or take uh, 20 or, or 30 years, depending on which historian you're reading. So I got a call. A call. Hey, hi, everybody outside. I, I love saying hi to people outside. Y'all are the smart ones. It's beautiful out there this morning, isn't it? Enjoy. Can you hear me okay? Okay. All right. Don't get up and leave before, the, before we're done, okay? Because I'll notice. I'll see that. One of you look like you already have your sunglasses on for the 21st. That, that looks good. Okay, I got a call uh, a couple weeks ago from a church in West, uh, Michigan, and they're looking for a new pastor, and they said, hey, we got your name from somebody, said you'd be a good person to talk to about our denomination and talk to us about what kind of pastor we're looking for. We, we want to call three or four pastors around the country. We want to kind of pick their brains as we go into this search, and we, we thought maybe you'd be uh, a good person to do that. And could we come to St. Louis which I'm like, oh, that's great. I don't have to go anywhere and spend half a day with you. We need about four hours. And I kind of went, how about a conference call for 20 minutes? Because that's about all I have to have to offer. But, but as I was trying to find a polite way to say no, one of the people said, and by the way, the person that gave us your name to contact is Sandy Wilson. Now, Sandy Wilson was uh, a pastor at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church back in the 1980s. And I worked for him, my very first job in youth ministry. And Sandy was the guy who said to me, I think God has a bigger calling on your life than, than just student ministry. Now, that's not to say that student ministry is bad, but I was thinking I was going to do it for the rest of my life, right? Could you imagine this showing up at Kirkwood High School or <laughs> Westminster saying, hey, kids, let's, you know, let's have a great time? It probably wouldn't work. But Sandy was a guy who, who believed in me and was a guy that, that pushed me to to consider, you know, maybe there's some other gifts that I have. And so I, I hold a very dear place in my heart for Sandy. He went on to be the pastor at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. He just retired back in February. But if somebody calls me and says, Sandy asked me to ask you, the answer is always going to be yes, right? Because he was a person that was very gracious and kind and encouraging in my life. The question we want to wrestle with this morning uh, out of Second Chronicles, we're going to look at Second Kings a little bit as well, a parallel passage of Josiah, is how do you respond to grace? How do you respond when someone's kind to you when they, they don't have to be? They're not forced to be kind. They just, of their own nature, uh, are compelled to be merciful and gracious and kind to you. Because if you're in a relationship with God this morning through the Lord Jesus, which is the only way to be in a relationship with God, it's because he's been gracious to you. It's because he's been kind to us. It's because he's been merciful to us. I, I, I Lord willing, have my faith is in Christ and, and I'm going to heaven not because I'm a good person, but because God has been kind to me. So how do I respond? How does the rest of my life get lived? And that's what we want to see in this passage about Josiah. So we're going to look at 2 Chronicles. We're going to use chapter 34, the first seven verses. It's kind of a, a base of operations this morning. So hear the word of God. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Now, that's not a misprint. Josiah's father was such a bad king, and people hated him so much that his own bodyguards assassinated him two years into his, into his rule. 
So Josiah had an evil, evil dad. You always hear about the evil stepmother and all like the fairy tales. This is, this is an evil father and he's been murdered. And now the queen mother is kind of ruling while we're waiting for Josiah to be old enough to be king. But don't think that's a misprint. That's what it says. It's correct. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the ashram and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above him. And he broke into pieces the ashram and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim and Simeon and as far as Naphtali and their ruins... All around he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. (laughs) Then he returned to Jerusalem. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together for just a moment. Father, we come this morning seeking your presence. We have sung of your glory and your mercy. Uh, we, have, we have asked the Holy Spirit to be present. Lord, we don't, uh, we don't want to come here out of ritual. We don't want to come here just out of habit. This is what you do on Sunday morning to check off your Jesus box and then move on through the week. Father, I pray that we would come here seeking your face. And Lord, even as I pray that, I know we come from many different backgrounds, many different scenarios of life. Some people come in this morning deeply bruised and hurt emotionally even hurt by the church in some instances. Father, some folks come with with broken families and with relationships uh, in their immediate life that are struggling. Some of us come with great financial questions in our heart and our mind. Uh, Lord, others of us come um, maybe with a spirit of smugness and, and we're pretty good because we're here. Father, I thank you that you know all of us. Thank you that you meet us right where we are. Thank you that you don't expect us to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and be presentable. You simply say, come and sit at my feet and hear the words of life. So, Father, we're not here to hear my words. They're irrelevant. They don't matter. They're no more important than any other person's words. We come here to hear the words of life, and we pray to that end that you would teach us. Forgive me my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of what your spirit wants us to learn and know and apply this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our sermon in a sentence this morning is pretty straightforward. Uh, We've kind of already introduced it. God's grace leads to repentance and a longing to honor him in our daily lives. And we're going to look at those two things, repentance and this longing to follow God, uh, not necessarily in that order. We're going to kind of bounce back and forth. But perhaps you've noticed if you've been a Christian for some time, if you put your faith in Jesus, that it's, it's a little bit easier the longer you go to see when you sin, to see when you mess up, to see when you get something wrong. You know, you go, well, I got a bad temper and I snapped at somebody and I shouldn't have done that and I need to repent of that. I need to ask God to forgive me. I need to ask the person whom I've offended to forgive me and, you're, and you've kind of gotten uh, going down that road and that's a good thing. But you also might, might sense, you also may sense that you actually want to do things that honor God. 
that you want to live a life that really does follow Jesus, that it's not just about kind of getting your insurance card and getting into heaven, but it's actually about a way of life. It's about what we call discipleship, being conformed to the image of Jesus. So you want to be more like God. That's what the Holy Spirit of God and the Bible does in our lives. That's the transformation that Scripture promises. And we see in Josiah that transformation, and we see some lessons about what we can learn for our lives as we think about how we live out of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Let's give a little bit of backdrop before we get into this scenario. How is Josiah's life a reflection of grace, of God's grace and mercy? You say, well, God made him king, and that's, that's the best chair to sit in, and he, he had everything he needed and everything he wanted. But well beyond that, how was God actually gracious to him and his people? Well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, and God is delivering, getting ready to deliver what we call the law of Moses. And this is the preamble to the Ten Commandments. Uh, this summer, we've done the Kings of uh, Old Testament. Next summer, we're actually going to do Ten Sundays on the Ten Commandments. And we're looking at the ten com one commandment each Sunday. But this is the preamble. This is the introductory statement. The Lord God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice how several hundred years, probably 400 years before Josiah was around, right? You have God saying, I am merciful. I am gracious. I am rescuing you out of the house of bondage. So he reintroduces himself to the people of Israel through his actions of taking them out of Egypt and then reminding him that he is kind. But you could go back even before that. You could go back to the founding of the nation of Israel and you could look at the life of the man we eventually call Abraham, but in this particular text is known as Abram. And God says to Abram, I want you to come follow me. I'm going to take you to a new place because you're the, you're the very best candidate on the planet. You're you're the, you're, the, you're the best, you're the brightest, you're the strongest, you're the, you're the best looking. No, none of that. Why does God pick Abraham? Well, listen to what he says. I will make you a great nation, right? Why? Because that's God's character. It's a character of blessing. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, right? So my impact on you is not just for you, but so that you will impact others. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's actually a prophecy about the coming of the Lord Jesus, because Jesus is the son of Abraham. And we're sitting here this morning, if you're a believer, if you're saved by the grace of God through Jesus, it's partially because of this promise that was given thousands of years ago. And it's a statement of grace. But you could go back even further. You could go back to the very beginning when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. And God gave them everything on a silver platter and said, just trust me and follow me and, and love me and trust my love for you and it will be wonderful. And they spit on it and they turned their back on it and they went their own way. And this is after their sin. And God speaks a word of promise, he speaks a word of grace. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That's a statement about the coming of Jesus and the work he will do on the crush. He will crush on the cross. He will crush the head of Satan and he will be bruised in the process because he had to give his life as a ransom for many. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. So here's Josiah, several thousand years after this, several, several hundred years after the founding of Israel, 
but he knows he is a recipient of God's grace. How does he live his life? Let me give you a, a few observations out of this text. We have five observations of this text this morning. The first is this, that, that as recipients of grace, we are to tell our children or teach our children. I'm going to talk about somebody besides Josiah for just a minute. When Josiah was eight years old, he began to reign. His mother's name was Jedidah. I always want to say Jedidiah, but there's not another I at the end. The daughter of Adiah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This is really odd in the Old Testament to list not only mom, but grandma. You normally name the fathers of the kings. You don't normally name the women, but here we have two women named. Why is that? Because of the influence they had on this young man, right? Look at his mom's name. It means beloved or darling of Yahweh, the beloved of God. And obviously her life reflected that. Her life pushed her son in the direction of knowing and loving God. Because why? Because her mother, whose name was witness of Yahweh, in other words, my life is a witness to the fact that Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, brought her daughter up in a way so that she could bring up the grandson in a way that would honor God. So from the time that Josiah was eight, until the time he actively began to work on the throne at 16, he learned about the grace and the mercy of God from his mother and from his grandmother. His mother formed his thinking towards Yahweh, and I don't believe you can overestimate this influence. I don't believe you can overestimate the importance, the role of parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and godparents play in the lives of children who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I love the video we saw, Vacation Bible School. I love the commitment that Green Tree has to telling our children about Jesus, but it doesn't start with us. It starts within the home. It starts with mom, it starts with dad, it starts with grandparents reading the scriptures to our children, discussing them, teaching them, giving them the words of life at the very earliest ages so that they have a foundation for a faith that we pray will come into their lives at the right moment. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God says this to the people of Israel collectively, these words I command you today shall be on your heart, right? Well, that's good for me, right? So I, it's, I'm supposed to remember these things. Great. But it goes beyond that. You shall teach them to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So put that in a modern vernacular, you'll talk about this to and from soccer practice, right? You'll, you'll every once in a while, you'll, you'll put away the, the little handheld games and we're going to spend some time reading the word and talking about it. We're going we're gonna to pray before we go to bed at night. We're going to spend a little bit of time here, a little bit of time there, not, not in big long lectures, but just consistently and constantly in small ways and in larger ways, feeding the gospel of grace to our children. It's crucial that the relationship with God in my life, if I am a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, or for that member, a member of Green Tree, when we stand up and take vows at our children's baptism to, to raise them and help them to come to know Jesus, it's important that we remember to pass this on. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter 6. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. One of the re reactions to grace one of the responses to grace is to invest generously in the lives of our children and their relationship with God. 
Secondly, however, it's not just investing in others, but it's taking personal responsibility for our own growth. Let's come back to 2 Chronicles in chapter 34, verse 3. It says this, for in the eighth year of his reign, so he started when he was eight, eight and eight is, is 16, even though you're not back to school yet. I know you got that, right? So when he was 16 years old, well, he was yet still a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. I'll put it in Tom Ricks' terms. When he, when he turned 16, he basically said, Mom, thank you so much for the foundation, but now it's on me. Now it's my responsibility to take this faith and make it my own and see what God has for me. And he began at that age. He was able to be a critical thinker. He was able to, to take notions and ideas and begin to formulate those and put those into practical application for his own life. And notice that his mother didn't say, no, no, son, you're too young, you're not ready, and, and, and kind of keep him too close, right? He had the opportunity to kind of grow. So I'm going to go down a side road for just a second. Parents, don't smother your children, even with the gospel, right? Our role is not to protect our children. Our role is to let our children grow in the grace and the knowledge and the mercy of God. Part of that is protection, yes. But I think sometimes we're so afraid of the world out there that we underestimate what God can do in the lives of our children at these ages. When they're entering into to later in middle school and high school, we ought not baby them spiritually or in any other way, but rather challenge and correct, but give some room to grow. I've told this story on numerous occasions. When our children were freshmen, we told them, if you obey our curfew and our rules the first three years of high school, when you're a senior, you'll set your own schedule. You can come and go as you want any time of the day or night. The only rule is by midnight, you got to be in the city limits of Kirkwood. But other than that, it's going to be up to you because we don't want you to learn about the freedom of not having a curfew when you're a freshman surrounded by several thousand other 18-year-olds who, who now are free to go, right? We'd rather you learn in our home. Now, we're going to get you up for school. You can't sleep in. You can't skip work. But you're going to have to learn. We gave them a little bit of room to grow. We got a lot of criticism from that from our friends. But we took it. That was okay because we had a plan and we worked that plan. We were not there to hover over them. We were there to challenge them to make their life, their faith, their own. That's parents, young men and young women. I want to talk to you for a minute. Your mom and dad's faith is not your faith. It is not their job to hold your hand spiritually into high school and into college. You have a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith. If you've put your faith in him, it is your responsibility as a disciple of Jesus Christ to take that seriously. It doesn't mean it won't be hard. It doesn't mean there won't be moments of failure. It doesn't mean there won't be times when you make a wrong decision and you need forgiveness and you need mercy. And it certainly doesn't mean that you can't go to your mom and dad and ask them questions. You absolutely should. That's why God put them there. But you have to understand that for this faith to be real, it has to be your own. And I think that the, the, the life of Josiah gives us a, a very important picture that he, he took it upon himself to seek the God of David, his father. And I would encourage all of our young people to do the same. That being said, all of us, no matter what our age is, from the youngest to the oldest, it is my responsibility, it is our personal individual responsibility to grow in faith. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes 
on your ways. You see the personal responsibility there that the psalmist is taking? I'm going to make it a choice to know and love and follow my God. It's not that we can't help each other. not that you can't go to a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Do you have some advice? Absolutely. And, and we ought to encourage one another. We ought to challenge one another in our faith. But ultimately, it rests with me to follow Jesus in my life. I remember when I first became the pastor of Green Tree Community Church and how scary that was. And we had this mission statement, right, to grow disciples and renew communities and plant churches. And there were, there were 60 or 70 of us. And I thought, how on earth am I going to do this? And if they only knew they hired, they would, they'd probably fire me tomorrow and find somebody else. And there were a lot of moments of prayer. There were a lot of moments of unmitigated fear. But there were also a lot of moments of growth. Because it was an opportunity for me to say, God, this, I'm not an assistant pastor anymore, right? I can't say, well, go talk to the boss, right? I, I guess I could say go talk to Jesus, but that, that would be an inappropriate thing to say, right? right? So, Lord, you got to help me. And I, and I got to dig in here because I have no idea what I'm doing, right? So you may be in one of those moments, but trust that if you dig into God, he's going to give you what you need. We tell our children, we take responsibility for our personal growth, but also there's an outcome here that is more culturally wide, it's more socially wide, and that is standing against that which is wrong. I'm not going to read these next several sentences word by word, but you heard them earlier. Did you see the action and the activity of Josiah? He looked around and said, we are a nation of idol worshipers. We are worshiping all the false gods. We're, we're doing everything spiritually wrong that you could possibly do wrong. And if my people are going to have any chance whatsoever of turning back to God, I got to get rid of all the idols. And so you look at this language, he purges, he chops down, he cuts down, he breaks into pieces. He chops down some more. He cuts down some more. He breaks into more pieces. He makes dust. He scatters the dust. He burns. He cleanses. He breaks down. He beats into powder. He cuts down. He's actively taking a stand against the evil in his culture. And this was no easy task. Josiah is reigning in a time where they've had almost 300 years of false worship, of idol worship. It is ingrained in their society. We, uh, in St. Louis, we call ourselves, we don't really even call ourselves Missourians, right, around here. We, we have kind of one name for ourselves, whether you're, a, whether you're a huge fan or not. We're Cardinal Nation, right? I know some of you had the terrible uh, you know, experience of being born in Chicago, and I'm sorry for that. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of how we, we identify ourselves in this way. Think, think about people that identify themselves very deeply ingrained as Baal worshipers, as people who worshiped at the Asherah, as people who, whose, whose main focus of their lives was anything other. And here comes this punk king, 20 years old, and he's going to tell us that we can't worship this way. And then he started chopping and then he started burning. And, they, and he had the army in his back, so that probably helped him quite a bit. But even with probably all of that resistance from people of power and people saying, don't you know that the kings came before you would never have done so? You do this, you're going to lose your kingdom. And he did it anyway. I think the church today has become skittish about confronting evil. Now, part of that is because I think we are wise to stop and think about how we confront evil. Because you can be arrogant and you can be rude. And you can be self-righteous. You can look nothing like Jesus and confront evil. And that's sinful. I think it's wise for us to say there needs to be humility. There needs to be kindness. 
and there needs to be compassion on every topic which we touch. But we also must stand on the truth of the Bible. We must follow God, and we must be willing to confront evil where we see it. I am unapologetically pro-life. Some people will say you're mean-spirited and you're anti-woman. I do not hide the fact that I believe that Scripture says, and therefore I'm committed to, a marriage between a man and a woman. Some in their lexicon will call me a homophobe and a bigot. I have serious, serious questions about urban gentrification. You know, I think everybody understands that term. Uh, going back into the city and, and building new communities uh, that, that are, are kind of suburb-like and they begin to thrive and they begin to bring more business back into, back into the urban settings. But I have huge questions about urban gentrification as it comes to the fact that it always displaces the poor. The growth that happens in the city almost always is at the expense of those who can't protect themselves who are the poorest among us. And while I'm all for new buildings and new growth in our economy, are we concerned as believers in Jesus about these people that are hurt and no one stands up for them? I might be called anti-progress, but I ought to stand up anyway and believe in the goodness of God. Cindy and I have a, a young friend who is just embarking on her professional journey. And she comes from a difficult background. She comes from a background of poverty and she's working hard. One of the hardest workers I've ever seen. Doesn't always make the right decisions, but I make probably more wrong decisions than she does in a day. Uh, and I'm really proud of her. Uh, she got a car a couple weeks ago and uh, because she's poor, because she's black, and because she's a single mom, uh, the predatory lender realized that he could take advantage of her, and so he loaned her the money for a car at a rate of 26%. That's just wrong. That's just flat-out sin. And you know what? That's legal in the state of Missouri. So I don't know what I can do, but I can guarantee I'm going I'm to call and talk to my representative this week, and I'm going to try to get him on the phone, and I'm going to ask what in the world is going on. If you want people to get out of poverty... Why do you allow the very practice that keeps them oppressed? And if we're not willing to stand up for the poor, if we're not willing to stand up for the widow, for the orphan, for those who are the least among us, then how can we call ourselves disciples of Jesus? There comes a moment where we must take a stand against wrong. But fourthly, not only that, we must learn to repent of our sins, both past and present. Now, uh, Jordan Rothrock did a great job in drawing our kings, right? But if you, if you looked at Josiah in the, in the picture, it was, he, he had the, the law of the Lord open, right? And he had a big smile on his face. But this is actually probably a little closer to what his reaction was when he heard the law of the Lord being read. He was kind of freaked out over it. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 11 and 12. When the king heard the word of the book of the law, he tore his clothes and the king commanded uh, Hilkiah, the priest, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the word of this, words of this book to do according to all that has been written concerning us. 
That's a fascinating statement, friends, and I want you to catch it. What Josiah realized was that he had inherited a mess and that part of his mess was because of the sins of his fathers. Now, Josiah isn't being self-righteous here. He isn't saying, well, if I had lived in that day, none of this would have happened. He's simply acknowledging the fact of the situation, that part of the reason that idolatry is so deeply ingrained into the culture is because king after king after king rejected the word of God. And he understood that repentance actually needed to begin with knowing God and being convicted of sin, whether it was his or the sins of others. So they've repaired the temple. They've been, they've been fixing it up. They found the law of the Lord. They read it. And in the law, they read that says simply, if you trust me and follow me, I'll protect you. If you forsake me and you go to idol worship, it's all going to be over. You're going to end up in captivity in another relation. I'm going to, to remove you uh, from the kingdom. I'm going to remove my blessing upon you. And, and Josiah, you know, does this because he knows that they're a mess. And he understands that the sin is not just his generation, but it's the sins of his fathers. You can't know God and not be convicted of your sin. But perhaps this is a learning moment for all of us. It sounds like you can't be, and I think this is true, you can't be convicted, you can't know God and not be convicted of other sins of other generations. Not that you can go back and change it. You can't. God, that's not going to happen. But I think when we're convicted of sins that have come before us, it shows us that our heart's changing and going in the right direction. That we ought to be heartbroken, not self-righteous and say, boy, we, if we had been here, this, this wouldn't have ever happened. But rather, we repent of, 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 of Christians' past sins, our fathers, and I'll just stick to the church. In fact, for me personally, I'm just going to stick to pastors. As I look at pastors in this country in the past, there's one glaring sin that stands out above all others. And I can't speak for your profession. I don't know what it is. There might be a bunch of them. There might be one or two. But in my profession, there's one glaring sin that, is, that, that literally was from the founding of this nation on. And it was the endorsement or the excuse for slavery in this country that was preached from pulpits where people said slavery is right and good according to the Bible. And they literally used God's word and warped it and twisted it to say something it never said in order to oppress their fellow man. Now, I can't do anything about that. And the facts are, if I had been there, I can't say it would be any different. I mean, look at the mess that the United States is in today. What have I done, right? So I'm not throwing rocks at anybody, brothers and sisters, but I believe with all my heart that every one of us need to look at the Christian church, both today and in the past, and say, how have we, either through indifference or through actual actions, harmed race relations in our nations? And if you think we're not in that bit of a pickle right now, in that scenario, you have not had your television on or your phone on for the last 48 hours. It is broken. And it ain't getting fixed by the government. And it's not getting fixed by well-meaning people. The only chance we have to deal with this issue is honest relationship with Jesus Christ and humble repentance. I can't repent for you. I can't repent for anybody but myself. But I can also, according to Josiah, I can acknowledge what my forefathers have done. And I can ask God's mercy not to repeat the same mistake. So this is going to maybe sound goofy to you, but I'm just going to stop right now. And I'm going to pray for me. Jesus, I acknowledge the sin of those who have come before me who have stood in pulpits and 
oppressed their fellow man. Father, I probably would have done the same thing if I had lived in, in that day and age. I certainly have not been as active I should as I should have been in this age, but I'm not done yet, Lord, so I, I pray that you would empower me, that you would humble me, that you would move me in a, in a, in a different direction that would uh, embrace the, the glory that is the unity of the church, every nation, every tribe, every language, and that would actively seek to work towards that end. That green tree would be a place. People are like, man, it just doesn't matter who you are. Everybody's welcome at green tree. And the people that go there actually live that out in their lives. So, Father, I pray that you would help me to, to go in that direction. And I pray that you would forgive me for the times I don't. In Jesus' name, amen. The last observation, I'm sorry, I'm running a little bit long. I'm doing all right. Um, well, you might not think so, but the last observation is sometimes pastors have these thoughts all the time. I just happen to blurt them out because I'm an oral, I'm an oral pastor. I guarantee every pastor looks at the clock and goes, I wonder what I'm doing. Um, my last observation of this text is to be a recipient of grace means that you are actively celebrating that grace publicly with your community of faith. 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 21 through 23. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges or during all the days of the kings of Israel or Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, so now he's 26 years old, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Now the Passover starts out a bit tough. You got you to eat unleavened bread. You got to eat on the run. It's like going through the drive-thru at McDonald's. It's not all that good. But after the, the next day after that is celebrated, then you begin to have a party. Then you begin to celebrate. And for several days, it's kind of a blowout celebration because of God's grace and mercy. And so I love the fact that the king said, we're having a party. And I'm commanding all of you to have a party. Everybody could follow that. I mean, that's easy. Even if you're an introvert, you go home and have a party by yourself. Everybody <laughs> loves to have a party, right? That's what we do on Sunday mornings, friends. I know sometimes maybe it doesn't feel like it because I talk too long, but we celebrate the grace of God. That's why we stand and sing. It's why we have communion. It's why we baptize our kids. It's why we come here and we give, we give honor and homage. Why? Because we just can't believe that God would love us as much as he had. If you're coming because you're coming out of guilt and you think it's what God's supposed to do, please keep coming because we want to talk you out of that. But that's really a, that's really a bad way to look at it. The Son of God died for you on the cross. He gave his life for you. He's acted in grace toward you. Celebrate that every day of your life. We are free people. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We ought to be telling everybody about this love and encouraging each other. And that's, that's why Sunday worship is important. Again, not to check off your Jesus box because we get together and we're reminded. And sometimes we get to introduce others to this truth, and it's new for them. As I said to you last week, starting next Sunday, we're going to have 400 extra chairs that don't have any names assigned to them yet. I hope we're praying and thinking and talking to friends and family members and neighbors who don't know Jesus, saying, you, you want to come to a party with me on Sunday morning? They'll probably look at you a little weird. But you say, no, there's refreshments. There, in fact, it's a pancake party next Sunday, right? All this is true, right? And there's some great people that are just like you and me, just normal folks. And you're going to be shocked by how much God loves you. Why don't you come find this out, right? 
We have the opportunity to celebrate the glory that is the grace of God. How do we apply this passage this morning? Two quick thoughts here. The first is this. Josiah's story is really our story. There really isn't any difference. We're recipients of God's grace. The question is, have we recognized it the way Josiah recognized it? So just a, a couple of verses to reinforce that. Matthew 20, 28, for the Son of Man, Jesus is talking about himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. Did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's grace. Jesus said, I've come to give away so that you can be ransomed, be taken out of captivity. In uh, John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to one of the priests, maybe the most famous Bible verse of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, not perish, but have eternal life. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 5. While we were still weak, Christ dies for the ungodly. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Grace, grace, and grace. That's your story if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning. It's not a story about work. It's not a story about guilt. It's not a story about about second effort. It's a story of God's redeeming power to save somebody like you and like me. The second application is simply this. The five observations that we've given. Tell our kids personal responsibility for growth, standing against wrong, uh, repenting of sins, past and present, public celebration. That is the application. That's, that's a picture of the life of one of God's children, Josiah. Josiah's not the hero of the story. Remember the first 16 years of Josiah's life, he had people telling him about God, and then he studied about God, and God revealed himself. And God showed his grace so that Josiah could become a person of grace a person that reflected the glory and mercy of God. How do you respond to grace? Hopefully, we respond to repentance and a longing to honor God in our daily lives. Will you pray with me? Father, we bless your name this morning. You are the Redeemer. You are the Savior. We take no credit uh, for our faith, for our belief, Uh, upon ourselves. We know that it is an act of your mercy. We know that we are, if we are disciples, Lord, we know we are recipients of your grace. Father, help us to live that when we mess up, and we will, probably before the day is over. Help me, help us to confess our sin to you. Father, help us also to realize that in the context of our world, there are those who have gone before us who have done great damage. We don't sit in judgment of them, but we pray that you would help us to make different choices that honor you and glorify you and could have a transforming impact on our culture. Father, help us to, to share this with our children and to just rejoice in the mercy that you have given us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.